let's turn back to Mark's Gospel in chapter 3 this morning. And Mark portrays the Lord Jesus as the very active servant of God. His mission has been to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, to give his life as a ransom for those in his kingdom, and be resurrected as their Savior and Lord. People have been flocking to him from the region of Galilee for a variety of reasons. They have witnessed his authority in teaching, his healing, his performing miracles, and his casting out of demons. But though Jesus is very popular, opposition to his ministry has been growing over time. And according to chapter 3 and verse 6, two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, were already plotting how they might take his life. Our passage today further reveals resistance to the Lord's ministry. It comes from some people that we would expect it to come from, but also some people we would not expect it. Our narrative begins and ends with the family of Jesus setting out to rescue him from the strain of ministry. They believe he is in need of rest and recuperation from ministry, and they want to bring him home. Sandwiched between their actions is a section that relates an accusation of the scribes that Jesus is empowered by Satan, not God. And Jesus shows the absurdity and seriousness of that charge to his disciples. When the family finally arrive in Capernaum, he reveals who the true family of God is and those who seek to do his will. Now, we would expect the experts of the law to continue their opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many today who claim to be proponents of a true religion And they may not speak as evilly of Christ as these scribes did, but neither do they recognize the truth of who he really is. They too are in grave danger of eternal condemnation. And even the family of Jesus, perhaps with the exception of Mary, did not believe in him until after the resurrection, and the passage here reveals how they inadvertently were resisting his ministry as well. Now, we can take courage from this passage whenever we might receive opposition from unsaved relatives and friends who don't understand our changed behavior as a Christian. Sometimes even saved people who are close to us may not support what we believe that the Lord wants us to do. And we can take heart that Jesus experienced the same type of things, but he continued to do the will of God as we should do today. Our Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing on your word today. We're thankful, Lord, that you have saved us and you have saved many members of our family and uh, made us even closer together through that. 
And Lord, we pray that in times where we might be receiving some opposition uh, from others, even people close to us, that we would stay on mission, that we would be like the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would uh, treat them kindly, but Lord, uh, continue to do your will. And Lord, of course, we know more clearly those who are your enemies. Uh, We know that many of them might be on the brink of disaster uh, if they don't change their ways. So help us to have a desire to reach them, uh, but Lord, also realize that they are opposing the truth and not support them in any way. Bless our study, we ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first thing that I want to draw from this passage this morning is that sometimes opposition comes from those who are closest to us. We see this in the first couple of verses. And we have a continuity of ministry going on, as we we have seen in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll continue to see. And this section actually begins with the last sentence of verse 19, and they went into a house. You'll remember that previously the Lord has gone up on the mountainside. He's called 12 specific disciples out of a group of disciples, followers, and now they are going to be with him on a regular basis. And when that uh, night uh, ends, they go back to Capernaum and they very likely go to the house of Peter, which becomes their base of operations in that city. And as they're there, and as usually what happens, verse 20, the multitude came together again. So wherever Jesus goes, people are crowding him. They're, they're wanting to be healed. They're wanting to have demons cast out. Some of them want to hear his teaching and preaching. And, and the situation has gotten so uh, uh, d- difficult, we might say, that they don't even have time to eat, as verse 20 conveys to us. And that's the reason why from time to time Jesus had to get away with his disciples, go to some private place, um, teach them, and just get a little bit of rest and reprieve from the ministry. But he was the one that was in charge of doing that. Now, we're introduced here in verse 21 to what Mark calls his own people. Now, uh, his own people... They hear about this. They're not in Capernaum. This is a, a euphemism or a, um, a, a term that describes his family rather than friends or disciples or other people. So his people are his family who we meet later in, in verse 31. We know that's who is being spoken of here. They hear about this difficulty of ministry Uh, and they're concerned about the intensity of it and how it's affecting uh, their son and brother, and they want Jesus to slow down, to back off a little bit. Look at their intention in verse 21. They went out to lay hold of him. Now, that's a very strong term, It's translated other places in Scripture as to seize, even to arrest. So this shows they wanted to restrain him, to take charge of him by force, if necessary, 
to get him to back off ministry for a while. And they give the reason. Did you notice that? The reason they want to do this is because they think he's out of his mind. Has anybody ever accused you of that? Other than your spouse. (laughs) They think Jesus is out of his mind. He's not thinking properly. And uh, they want to kind of save him from himself. Uh, What would we call that today? Well, he's a little touched in the head. He's crazy. He's a bit of a fanatic. And he needs to come home and take it easy for a while. But their attitude actually shows a resistance to his ministry and his calling. Now, Jesus was willing to sacrifice physical needs from time to time for the sake of ministry. You remember when he was tempted in the wilderness? He went 40 days without eating. Uh, And surely he grew physically weary and hungry at times during this ministry of his. But his mission was to reach as many people as he could because the time was short. He only had so much time and there was a lot to be done. And uh, he wanted to reach people with the gospel and was willing to deprive himself in that effort. So his family, however, has still not grasped the scope of his mission and fully understood who he was. Was their concern genuine? Yes, I believe it was. Although it may have been mixed with a little sense of embarrassment to the family. Uh, Here's our oldest son going all over the place and all these people are crowding him and and, uh, bothering him. Uh, He's not letting himself get enough rest. They can't eat from time to time. And uh, there there are people that are higher ups in our religious system that are starting to have a negative reaction to him. So we need to just pull him out of that for a period of time. And they just felt he was too immersed in ministry. He was working too hard. This is affecting not only his body, but his mind. So their solution was, let's go get him and let's force him to come home and take it easy for a while. Now, this puts them in a place that is not a whole lot different than other opponents to his ministry. They certainly do not hate him. They care for him. They're concerned about his physical, emotional, and mental needs. But this still goes against the will of God. It places them on the side of opposition, whether they realize it or not, whether they're properly motivated or not. Now, let's try to bring this up to date a little bit. Sometimes converts to Christ face resistance from family members. They don't understand what you have done. Uh, They resist the changes that you may be making in your life because now you know the Lord. They may think you're a little bit of a fanatic. Uh, They may give you a hard time. Your conversion is actually bringing some strife into your family, a sword, if you will, 
even as Christ predicted. But you have to resist the resistance and keep on with the Lord. Sometimes family or friends who are saved may be against a call to ministry, like becoming a pastor or a missionary. And so they don't want you to live far away from them. They don't want you to get too carried away or deeply involved in ministry. They may try to talk you out of what you believe God wants you to do. But we need to be the kind of people who will resist that, but also the kind of people who will not be that way, uh, who will be willing to give up members of their family who God calls into ministry and to support them instead of trying to deter them from what God wants them to do. And that may be a sacrifice on our part as well as on their part. It also shows us how willing Jesus was to be expended to please God in doing his will. And we're living in a time where Few Christians are really willing to sacrifice a whole lot in service for Christ. To give up a meal, a few hours of sleep, a favorite activity for a Christian ministry? Well, few if any of us will ever reach burnout mode for Christ, will we? And that's what Jesus was. Now, the next thing I want to notice here, and this takes up a good portion of our passage today is that opposition always comes from Christ's enemies, but they do not deter him. So let's see how this all works out. First of all, as we get to the next verse, we have a very serious accusation from the enemy. And once again, the accusers are the scribes, the legalists the lawyers of the Old Testament law, and in their number could be Pharisees. So these fellows have come down now from Jerusalem. Now let's remember, we see this very often, the people come down from Jerusalem. That doesn't mean they're going down south. That means Jerusalem's up here, and a lot of other places are down here, Jerusalem is not a hill, so you come down from Jerusalem to go other places. But Jerusalem is the capital, it's the center of worship, and these people are involved in the worship of God, and now they're going to directly oppose the Lord Jesus, and it seems like this may have been an official delegation to come and deal with this problem person uh, who is Jesus. So the scribes come down from Jerusalem, and Matthew tells us, he expands on this a little bit, he tells this that the broader context is Jesus casting out a demon from a man who was mute. Uh, so the, the accusation comes from how did Jesus do this, not a denial that he did do it. So what do they say? They say, he has Beelzebub. Now, who's Beelzebub? Well, they say by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So who's the ruler of the demons? Well, the devil is. Satan is. So this is another name for Satan. We're not exactly sure of um, the background of it, 
but it's obviously another name for Satan. And many believe it's derived from an Old Testament term that means Lord of houses, and it would suggest that he is the Lord, the king, the ruler of uh, uh, demons, and of course the kingdom of darkness, and they're clashing together. So they are affirming that Jesus is able to cast out demons, but they attribute the power to do that, not from God, but from Satan. And this tells us, first of all, that they accept the fact, the truth, that Jesus does cast out demons. He does have spiritual power, but they refuse to believe this power is from God. They choose to believe it's from Satan, which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Now, we see this truth, uh, or, or, or this attitude, I should say, in our day being promoted on many levels. That what God has established as good, holy, and right, humanity turns around and says, well, this is really evil. And instead, we begin to proclaim that which is truly evil and wrong is really good and wholesome. And we could come across many examples of that today in our newly established woke world, which is really not woke at all. All right. Now, Jesus does not allow this perverse thinking to stand. He deals with it. And he refutes his accusers and their false claims in the next number of verses. First of all, he points out the absurdity, the silliness of this accusation. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold water. So what does he do? In verse 23, he called them, the scribes, to himself and said to them in parables. Okay, here we come across the first mention of a method of teaching whereby Jesus uses something in life that's easy for us to comprehend and he applies a spiritual truth to it. But his greater purpose is to reveal truth to his followers. They'll get it. They'll understand. But he keeps his enemies in the dark. They can't really understand. Now, in answer to this false claim, he calls them to himself and he asks them a question. And he's using three parables of comparison here. How can Satan cast out Satan? That's really not very sensible. So first of all, he answered by saying, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a country is divided within it eventually is going to be disrupted. And if that continues, that nation will eventually be destroyed. Uh, people in our country need to, to realize that truth, don't they? Secondly, 
He goes on to say, if a house is divided against its, uh, itself, that house cannot stand. So now we're getting down to a family group. And we all understand how that happens. Look at the divorce rate today and the devastation that causes between a husband, a wife, and their children. And guess who the fallout goes to most of all? It's the children. And so that house, when it's divided, when the leaders can't get along and they're fighting and they eventually split up, well, the house falls. So Jesus is saying, if Satan is divided against Satan, just like a kingdom, just like a family, they won't uh, stay together if they're divided. How will his kingdom stay together? It can't. And Jesus really is is starting to destroy that kingdom. He's starting to tear it down. And he goes on to explain this in the third parable of a strong man's house being plundered. So he goes on to say, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And once he does that, he'll be able to plunder his house. So, do you think that they they got that parable? Because the strong man is who? The strong man is Satan. He is a strong man. He does have spiritual power, uh, but how can his house be plundered, taken over, if he is not bound in some way. And Jesus is the one who binds the strong man and begins to plunder his kingdom, his house. He began to do that through his temptation. Satan had no effect upon him. Every time he cast out a demon, he was binding Satan and he was freeing people from his power. And eventually, even though he dies, he will bind Satan when he's raised from the dead and provides a way of salvation for everybody. So Jesus is the one who binds the strong man and plunders his house in these different ways. So Jesus is stronger than Satan, and he's not using Satan's power to cast out Satan because that's just a little bit stupid. And these people... You don't know if they got it or not. They should have. But as time goes on, we'll find it doesn't make any difference if they understood or not. They were going to get rid of Jesus, and they thought they could do it by claiming, well, yes, he does cast out demons. We can't deny that. We see that happening on a regular basis. But it's the devil who's controlling him, so we can't follow him. And Jesus very deftly shows them how that just plain doesn't make any sense, and uh, you shouldn't be believing what the scribes are saying about me. So, this is what the scribes, however, choose to believe, try to sway the people back to be under their authority. Now, the Lord Jesus goes on, however, to explain to us the eternal peril of this kind of an accusation. And he says in verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. Now, isn't that an encouragement to us? 
Jesus says, every kind of sin can be forgiven. All kinds of sins can be forgiven the sons of men. Uh, Even the sin of blasphemy. Now, Matthew adds, even if they sin against the Son of Man. So that's an encouragement to us because all the sins that we've done in our past, Jesus is able to forgive those sins. And we have freedom from Satan in our life because he's done that. And he mentions specifically here whatever blasphemies they may utter. So blasphemy is a verbal sin coming out of your heart where you say things that are uh, uh, hostile, malicious, injurious, and derogatory toward God. So it would be evil speaking toward other people, but also toward God. And in this situation, it would be toward God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, and, And the Lord says that we can be forgiven of these things, and we've all committed blasphemy, sorry to say. Uh, for, for example, a, a common expression today, OMG. Everybody says that. Even some Christians say that today. That is derogatory to God because it's a flippant mention of his name, spoken in ignorance of his holy being, and it's merely an expression uh, of personal surprise or awe or a lack of being able to say anything else. It's thoughtless. It's meaningless. But... It can be forgiven. God can forgive us of those types of expressions if we come to him as our Savior. But Jesus then says, there's another kind of sin, a deeper sin. He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. Now, what does this mean? What is this sin in the context? Well, it is ascribing to Satan the works of the Holy Spirit. By saying that Jesus has an unclean spirit, that he is controlled by Beelzebub, by the devil, uh, they're indicating that all the works he does are not through the Holy Spirit, but they're through a demonic power. That good was being produced by evil, we would have to say. Everything he did was good and beneficial to people. I'm sure all those people, if they had a choice, wouldn't say, well, put the demon back in me. That was fun. I'm sure those people would say, well, I was, uh, you know, I had a broken leg. Break it again because that was that was really great. Great experience. I'm thankful that you did this for me, but put me back into my old uh, condition that I really needed healing from or whatever. So everything Jesus did was good and helpful to those people. And now they're saying that really it's the devil that did it. The devil doesn't do that kind of thing. He doesn't do things that are helpful to people. But this is what they're saying. 
and it was a sin of blaspheming, speaking evil of the works of the Holy Spirit, ascribing them to actually the works of the devil, that good was being produced by evil. Now, Jesus indicates that the works he did, as he says this, were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because he's saying, you were speaking evil of the Holy Spirit. That's where my power is from. It's from God himself. So uh, he's working in cooperation with the Spirit of God, not against us. And his enemies are twisting it around to say, your power comes from Satan. I want to read you a quotation that I thought was really very good. In light of the context, this sin refers to an attitude, not an isolated act or utterance, an attitude of defiant hostility toward God that rejects his saving power toward man expressed in the spirit-empowered person and work of Jesus. It is one's preference for darkness even though he's been exposed to light. Such a persistent attitude of willful unbelief can harden into a condition in which repentance and forgiveness, both mediated by God's Spirit, become impossible. So that's really as serious as you can get. To claim that what the Holy Spirit does is through the power of the devil, or if we kind of turn that around, what Satan does is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Pretty much the same thing. Now, folks, I don't know if anybody here has ever wondered about this or worried about, have I committed this sin? I don't believe a Christian can commit this sin. Because it's associated with a persistent choice not to believe. And we are believers, so how can we commit that kind of a sin? But there are many lost people, religious people, who are perilously close to committing that because they are rejecting the truth of Christ. And I suppose there might come a day where that's it, you can't be forgiven. So this is very serious in the eyes of the Lord Jesus. Now, that brings us back to the family situation. And we find here in the last few verses what determines being in or out of God's family. What is the requirement? Okay, so in verse 31, his brothers and his mother came and they're standing outside. Now we have to remember that... uh, Mark interjects this accusation of the scribes in between the story of his uh, Jesus' parents uh, and um, brothers and sisters hearing about the situation where he's so busy he can't even eat regularly. They hear about that. They decide to come down. Well, it's going to take some time to do that. And in, in between... He's interjecting this event which may have happened during that period of time. Now they've made the trek, probably takes a day maybe, and they are coming to the house where Jesus is. We see again there's just a multitude around him. 
So either they won't come into the house or they can't come into the house. They send someone in, a messenger, to make his way in and tell Jesus that they're there and they're calling to him. They want him to come out so they can speak to him reasonably and get him to come home for a while. Okay, so that's where we're at. Now, we need to take note here of something, and that is the double reference to his family being outside and the people who were inside. There's two sides here. Those who are outside, whether they realize it or not, are resisting the ministry. Those that are inside are being involved in it. They're listening to Jesus. They're there because they want to be there. So they're trying on the outside to get Jesus to come out. But Jesus isn't going to do that. He's going to stay in. He's going to explain why uh, he needs to do that and who his real family uh, uh, consists of. Okay, so again, uh, his family, either they don't want to come inside likely because they want him to come out and they want to talk to him privately. They want to get him away from all this. They're not really his enemies, like the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, but they're acting kind of in resistance and opposition to what he's doing. And they want to pull him away from it, at least for a period of time. So Jesus then explains the requirement of his true family as they come and they say, look, your mother and your brothers are outside. They're, they're seeking you. They're, they're asking for you to come out and to talk to them. Well, Jesus answers them kind of in an unusual way. He says, well, who is my mother or my brothers? Now, we know who they are physically. It's Mary, and he's got brothers, and we'll find out later in chapter 6, he's also got sisters. So Jesus had a human family of of half-brothers and half-sisters. And they're concerned about him. And uh, they're out there. And he says, well, who really is my family? Who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Who are my sisters? They're not merely my human family standing outside wanting me to come out and leave my ministry. So what does he do? He asked that question in verse 34. He looked around in a circle at those who sat about him. Okay. So, in verse 32, there's a multitude sitting around him in the house. Then, he looks around those people sitting around him in the house, as opposed to those who are outside the house wanting to him, him to come out instead of stay in. And he says, as he looks around them, probably with compassion and uh, a desire to help them, and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. And he mentions sisters as well. These people here who are in the house, who are seeking my help, who have come for healing, who have come to have demons cast out of them, who want to hear uh, the word of God about the gospel of the kingdom. These people are the ones from whom my kingdom will be built. This is my family. 
And then he adds to it that not merely sitting there in that congregation makes you a part of the family. There's something else involved. And he goes on to say, For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So that's the key thing. Now, let's think of the context of Mark's gospel. What, to this point, would be doing the will of God? Well, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and what did he say? Repent and believe the gospel. So repent of your sins, turn away from your sins, and believe the gospel. Now, the gospel has not yet been fully revealed and uh, uh, provided, has it? Excuse me, that's still a couple years down the road. When Jesus dies and he's raised again. They can't see that, but they can believe up to the point where Jesus says belief is necessary. You believe what I'm doing. You believe who I am. I'm the son of God. I'm the son of man. I'm the Messiah. Do you believe this? If you believe this, then you're doing the will of God. Of course, today we have the full gospel. We understand everything it is. We know what Jesus did. And that's what we have to believe in order to be saved. And that's doing the will of God. Unfortunately, at this point in time, his family is saying, you need to quit doing that. And you need to come home and you need to take it easy for a while. What they were doing was really resisting the will of God, whether they understood it or not. And they were trying to keep Jesus from doing the will of God, which, of course, would have been wrong. And that's why he can't go with them. So what can we draw from this story today? Well, first of all, it's not hard for us today to recognize who God's enemies are. Um, Some of them are, are really so entrenched in open defiance that they may be beyond redemption, but are we the ones who who make that call? Are we the ones who really know that? So we still need to pray for folks and realize that, that most of them, yes, they're blasphemers, but so were we, and we got saved, and they need to get saved, and we can have a hand in that. We can share the gospel with them. And then let's be sure that we do not resist or hinder the gospel of the kingdom today in any way. We should give our full support to anyone who is called to service, even if they're a member of our family, our daughter, our our son, our grandson, our granddaughter, whoever they are. If God has called them, we should support them. It may make it so we can't see them very much, but guess what? We've got all of eternity. So we give our support by prayer, by giving, by serving, and locally by sharing the gospel. So let's determine to do that this coming year, especially in sharing the gospel with people in need. That's what makes a church grow. And then don't be discouraged when people give you a hard time over being saved or doing the work of the Lord. We can understand why unsaved people would do that, can't we? They just don't get it. They don't, they don't understand. They're not saved. It's a bit harder, though, if somebody in your family is giving you a hard time about ministry or doing this or that for the Lord. 
Jesus faced all this graciously, and we have to remember that his brothers later, after his resurrection, they came to know him as their savior. They were kind of resisting him before that, but once this all unfolded, they got saved. And finally, as members of Christ's family, the body of believers, we are to be characterized by doing the will of God. So let's determine that we're found in his will every day as we go about the tasks that he's called us to do. And that way he can bless us and grow his church. Heavenly Father, we pray today that you will help us to take these truths to heart. Uh, We realize, Lord, that there are many enemies of the gospel, but we have seen here that Jesus has bound the strong man. He's bound Satan. Satan's really a defeated foe. It's hard for us to grasp that when we see um, all the bad things going on in our society today, but in the end, we know you'll win, and you'll win individually in the hearts of people who come to the gospel. So help us, Lord, to be involved in sharing that truth with other folks uh, that we come into contact with. Help us, Lord, to resist the temptation uh, not to be involved, uh, to be laid back in ministry. Help us, Lord, not to be discouraged when we uh, don't see more people coming. Um, Help us not to be discouraged when others may look down on us or not agree with what we're doing or not understand what we're doing. Helps realize that you faced all of this when Jesus was on the earth and you resisted and you proclaimed the truth regardless of what people leave. Lord, help us as your family to be about your business and to do your will in this coming year. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.